It was uh, generous of Simon to say that I work on privative theories of evil. The truth is um, that I did my undergraduate dissertation on the privative view of evil 20 years ago and uh, was really impressed by Herbert McCabe at the time. Uh, and then came back to the topic over Christmas. We had a broken boiler. There was no heating. There was no hot water. And I decided, yes, evil is privative. And I sat there and I, I started writing and thinking about it again um, and, and uh, loved McCabe's writings on it uh, again. Uh, so is evil like a hole in a sock? I'm going to try and persuade you that it is. Um, so let's start with the question, what is a privative view of evil? Um, and um, one thing about it is that uh, privative is the same kind of word as uh, deprivation, that kind of thing. It's an absence and not a presence. And McCabe has this great analogy for it, uh, which is that it's like a hole in a sock. So he says, if I have a hole in my sock, the hole is not anything at all. It is just an absence of wool or cotton or whatever, but it is a perfectly real hole in my sock. Nothing in the wrong place can be just as great, sorry, just as real and just as important about as something in the wrong place. Now there are, as I found out, lots of debates about the ontology of holes, but you'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to go in uh, to talk about those. Um, I think McCabe's point here, I think I've maybe written down a bit of the quote slightly wrong, but I, I think the main point here is that there are two senses of real. We use the word real in two ways. One is uh, that it's not illusory. It has a real effect on the world. And the other is it's substantial. Um, it's something rather than nothing. It has existence. And McCabe is saying, that holes are real in the first sense. They're not illusory. We all know when we've got a hole in our sock that it's not illusory, especially if like our toe goes through and it sort of cuts our circulation and is slightly uncomfortable. It has a real life effect on the world. Um, however, it, uh, holes are not real in the second sense. So they are an absence of something. They're not a stuff. Uh, they are the lack of stuff. Um, and McCabe, and I, I think I want to say, that something is similarly true of evil. Now we might think in a way, uh, okay, but surely there's a bit of a disanalogy here because um, a hole uh, in a sock, well, you can see that a sock is, is made of real stuff, right? So it is substance, um, but in a way, you wouldn't, affect, you wouldn't expect something like evil to be a substance, it's not, it, goodness, is, goodness, for example, is not a material stuff. Uh, so what kind of thing is being got at here? Well, I think the, the sense is that um, even, if, even if something is not physical matter, even if it's not uh, something tangible, we can still talk about it as uh, being substantial, as being something rather than nothing. So, for example, we wouldn't want to say that the colour red uh, has some stuff that we can point to where we can say this is redness, but we would nevertheless want to say that uh, that book over there is red uh, and someone's jumper is red and so on. Uh, so what is being denied 
is that uh, evil uh, is a property in, in that kind of sense. Okay. Um, right, next slide. Now, a privation is an absence, but it's not any absence. So um, none of you here, I have noticed, have wings on your back. Um, and so you might think, well, an evil, evil is always an absence. I have an absence of wings, and therefore it's evil that I don't have a wing. I don't have wings. Um, but privation is not any absence. It's an absence of a due good or an absence of a an appropriate good. So if there's a kind of bird, and this kind of bird always has wings, and that particular bird doesn't have wings, then that's a privation. But the fact that Mark doesn't have wings is not a privation because Mark is not supposed to have wings. He's not that kind of being. Um, now I'm going to take as an example, this is my dog's fox, toy fox, fried swide fox. And um, fried swide fox used to have stuffing in her and, and she used to have a squeaker. Uh, but there's my dog Lola there and Lola removed the squeaker and the stuffing from fried swide. So having a, a squeaker and stuffing is an appropriate thing for fried swide to have. That's how she was designed, what she was supposed to have. Um, but sadly, there is now a privation of a squeaker, a privation of stuffing, and, and you would call that a privation. You would call that an evil. It's not a very bad evil, but it's still an evil. McCabe uh, says in the following passage uh, that good and evil are asymmetrical in this respect. So goodness is not like this. Goodness is not uh, the privation of anything. Uh, goodness is, as it were, uh, is fullness, is overflowingness, is plenitude. Um, McCabe says, now let us also notice that since badness is a defect, it is always parasitic on good. I mean by that, that you can't have badness unless there is at least some goodness, whereas you can have goodness without any badness. You could probably have a perfectly good washing machine with nothing wrong with it at all, were it not for built-in obsolescence and the capitalist modes of production. <laughs> um, and this is a parenthetical point, but I think one thing that's so wonderful about McCabe is um, he keeps these uh, political points, these kind of social points in his writing. So often people writing on this topic will, you know, they'll be politically great in their personal lives, but when they come to write about this topic, they'll choose quite conservative examples. They'll talk about a good burglar, meaning that the burglar is a bad person. McCabe throughout, for example, always, always kind of finds ways of working his, his politics uh, into his philosophy, uh, and in so doing kind of uh, doesn't default to these kind of very conservative, um, ways of talking. But the key point here is that good and evil are asymmetrical metaphysically. Uh, and that's going to be theologically important. So why is a private view of evil important? Now, um, I'm going to try and persuade you that it's really important, or at least if you're a member of 
an Abrahamic faith, and I think at least some of you are, then it's really, really significant. Um, I think a privative view of evil is a response to a problem of evil, but it's not the response to the problem of evil that most of us are familiar with if we teach philosophy of religion or something like that, and we do the evidential problem of evil. So this very familiar problem of evil is why would a good or powerful God allow there to be evil in the world? So it's almost as if it presupposes the possibility of evil or the existence of evil, and then God allows it to be in the world. That's, that's kind of um, the usual problem of evil. And the problem of evil that the private view of evil is a response to is if God is good, and if God created everything that exists apart from God's self, um, then how can there be evil at all? Uh, so it's a more kind of, um, it's not a kind of moral question, why does God allow evil in the world? Uh, it's a more, almost a more kind of metaphysical question than that. Um, God's good, God created everything that is, so then you'd expect everything that is to be good, but it's not, there's evil. So how can that, how can that be possible? Um, and there are various options uh, here that people put forward uh, as alternatives. One is the possibility um, that God did not create all that is apart from God's self. Um, and I think probably the most famous version of that idea is dualism. So um, I've kind of got a picture of dualism there. You've got uh, two creators with a small c, and one of them's God, and the other's the devil or something like that, and they're at loggerheads. Um, and that, I think, is not going to be an option for anyone in one of the Abrahamic faiths. Um, it seems to be pretty foundational uh, to the Abrahamic faiths that God created uh, everything that is apart from God's self. So uh, the Islamic creed says there is no God but Allah, there is no God but God. Uh, the Hebrew Bible repeatedly says you will, there is no God before me. Um, it seems to be really foundational. It seems to be a matter of revelation as well uh, for the Abrahamic faiths, that there is no God. So I think if you are a member of an Abrahamic faith, uh, then that's not going to be an option that you can go down and still be a member of the Abrahamic faith. You might become a Manichaean or something like that instead. Um, I think you would have to give up various things if you went down that route. So I think you'd have to give up um, the belief that all will in the end be well, for example. Um, so I think for most people in Abrahamic faith, that's going to be too much of a um, losing. It, you lose too much by doing that. Now, there might be other uh, positions you could adopt um, where you deny that God created everything that is apart from God's self. Um, so Peter van Inwagen seems to suggest something a little bit like this when he says that when the creed says God created all that is seen and unseen, there are restricted quantifiers um, and that 
God did not create necessarily existent abstract objects. And he's thinking of numbers. Um, and as kind of evidence or support for this, he takes the claim that all things are possible with God. And he says, look, this has restricted quantifiers. Um, it doesn't mean that God creates married bachelors or squared circles. Um, it, means, it means something much more quantified than that. And he says that we should think of the creed in the same way. Uh, he doesn't say evil is a necessarily existent abstract object. But if you really wanted to answer this problem of evil that I've put out there, um, and, and you don't like the private view of evil, perhaps you could apply PVI's views uh, and say, well, evil is a necessarily existent abstract object. Um, but I don't think that's a very good idea. Um, one reason is you'd have to be a Platonist, and who wants to be a Platonist? Um, another reason is he says, well, this is something that you get in that you get in the creeds. Um, I don't think he provides a lot of evidence for that. And I'm not a historian, but I do teach a course on Augustine. And Augustine's, one of, one of Augustine's arguments for God being eternal in the sense of outside time, timeless, is that he thinks that God must have created time because God created everything uh, that is apart from God's self. So Augustine is kind of, more contemporary to the writers of the creed than we are. Uh, and he's already thinking that abstract objects such as time, and I think it would probably include numbers, uh, were created by God. And, and so it seems to me intuitive that uh, the writers of the creed probably were thinking uh, in terms of numbers, time, and so on, as being created by God, uh, and not as necessarily existent abstract objects. So, so much for this sort of adaptation of PVI's view. Um, another option, instead of denying that God created all that is apart from God's self, you could instead deny that evil exists in both senses of the word real that I used. So you could deny um, not only that, let me go back, uh, not only that uh, it has real, um, that it is not something rather than nothing, but that it also is illusory. You could say it's illusory, uh, it doesn't actually have a real effect on the world. Um, and there are a few people who've tried to make that argument. So most famously, Spinoza, by virtue of being, uh, ha having a very kind of deterministic uh, metaphysic thinks, well, God is good, and everything deterministically flows from God. And if everything deterministically flows from God, uh, then everything is good. And even if things seem to be evil to us, they're not really evil. They're part of this beautiful kind of diverse plenitude um, of goodness. Mary Baker Eddy also has this idea that evil is illusory. She's different, I think, from Spinoza because she doesn't want to say, at the end of the day, she doesn't want to say that everything, all evil is illusory because she thinks there can still be the perception of evil in the human mind and that itself is evil. And 
where, where human agency comes into things is that humans can change their perception and see the world uh, as totally good and not as evil. Uh, so she doesn't quite carry it through to uh, its logical conclusion uh, in the same way that Spinoza does. Um, but I don't think we should say that evil is illusory. Uh, it seems blatantly untrue that uh, genocide uh, is not an evil that is illusory. Uh, for example, um, and it's unethical to say that evil is illusory, because if we say that evil is illusory, then we lose our motivations to do something about injustice, to do something about poverty, to do something about war, and so on. Now, you might say, well, what kind of argument is that? That's just a pragmatic argument. I'm not interested in pragmatics. I'm interested in truth. I want a kind of elithic or evidential argument. Um, but I think, again, if you are a person in an Abra Abrahamic faith, um, there are evidential arguments. Uh, and one of those is that in the scriptures, God is on the side of the poor, God is on the side of the oppressed, and God's people are called to be on the side of the poor and on the side of the oppressed. And by saying that evil is illusory and so undercutting the motivation to do anything about injustice, to do anything about poverty, um, uh, we're, um, we're falling foul of that particular revelation. Uh, so I think the idea that evil is illusory is unethical. Uh, that's a pragmatic argument, but for people within the Abrahamic faith through, through revelation, there's also an evidential argument to be made there. The final idea um, that you could have instead of the private view of evil, I think, is that God creates evil as well as good. So the thought here would be that God is good, but nevertheless, what's to stop God creating evil rather than good? Um, a really interesting student on my Augustine module, who's a Muslim student, um, put forward this idea. And he argued that this was Al-Ghazali's uh, view. So I'm going to read what Al-Ghazali says on this. I think there are lots of different ways you could, you could interpret this. Um, and we can com come back to different ways of interpreting it uh, later. Um, but I'll offer one interpretation of it and say why I don't think it's a particularly good option. So Al-Ghazali says this, it is that God does with regard to men what he wills, and it is not incumbent upon him to do whatever is good for them. It has already been stated that nothing is compulsory on God, but his dealings are not intelligible to men. Because there is nobody to question him what he does, but men are subject to questions. The Mutazilites say that it is incumbent upon God to do whatever is salutary to men. So Al-Ghazali seems to be questioning the Mutazilites here and saying it's not incumbent upon God to do what is good for men or to do what we commonly regard as good. Now, one way of interpreting what Al-Ghazali is getting at here um, 
is the thought that God is ra radically transcendent and is not subject to human conceptions of good. So I think maybe you get a similar thought in someone like, um, you at least get the thought in someone like Kierkegaard that God is above the moral law. And here I think the moral law would include human conceptions of good as well. So the thought is that um, God is not subject to the moral law and to human conceptions of good. You might think, I think actually this is, this is the most overlooked option, but I think in a way it's the hardest. Um, you might think, okay, but it's a problem because surely if we go down that route, then we, the language of God's goodness and the language of our goodness are so unrelated to each other that we lose the meaningfulness of the language of goodness when we talk about God. Um, so obviously there is always this kind of puzzle. The language we use of God is analogical, but just how, just how uh, far uh, away is it from the way we use language about humans? Um, I think this argument is in the right ballpark, but I don't think it's quite there yet. And one reason I don't think it's quite there yet is that the language of goodness is what Peter Geech called always attributive. Um, so when we talk about something as good, what it is to be good depends very much on what that particular thing is. And it's always good for someone or always good for something. So McKay puts it a lot better when he says, you get good grapes and good grapes can make good wine, but they're not going to make good deck chairs. So whatever we mean by language, whatever we mean by good is, is going to change on context by that. So that, it seems that that argument uh, is on slightly shaky ground there. Um, but perhaps you could look at something that seems closely related to God's goodness, and that's God's love. Um, and when we talk about God as loving, I think it's, uh, while we mean different things by love, my love for cheese is very different uh, from my love for my dog. Um, nevertheless, when we talk about love of persons, love for persons, whether it's the love that we have for our spouse, the love that we have for our child, the love that we have for our friends or our neighbour love, we always mean that the, the person who loves wills the good of the beloved. If they stop willing the good of the beloved, then uh, say if they're a very controlling partner or something like that, um, or, or they're a uh, kind of sadist um, and they're in a kind of intense sadistic relationship, then we would want to say that's not real love. There's something uh, pathological going on. There's something wrong with, with, that, with that picture and it, it's not genuine love. Um, so in the, in the case of God, if we want to say um, that um, God is loving, then we want to say that God always, uh, when, God, when we say God loves persons, we want to say uh, that God in fact does ultimately act well uh, towards, towards humans, kind of contra al-Ghazali. Um, 
And so I think ultimately we want to reject the idea that God creates evil as well as good. And we want to kind of say there's some, there's some commonality between our language of love and, and the lang in the case of humans and in the case of God. Um, so that's why I think basically a privative view of evil is the only option, the only credible option for Abrahamic theists. Uh, I don't think any of those other options are feasible or good options. And um, I don't think there are any other significant options that present themselves apart from a privative view of evil. So if we're Abrahamic theists, I think we better hope at this point that we can make the privative view of evil work because otherwise we're in slightly hot water. Um, the privative view of evil fits some examples of evil very, very easily. So Augustine uh, has this example about a dog with a poorly foot. I don't think it is a dog. Maybe I read dog into it. I seem to have a lot of dogs in, in this uh, talk. Um, what is anything we call evil except the privation of good? In animal bodies, for instance, sickness and wounds are nothing but the privation of health. When a cure is affected, the evils which were present, i.e. the sickness and the wounds, do not retreat and go elsewhere. Rather, they simply do not exist anymore. For such evil is not a substance. The wound or the disease is a defect of the bodily substance, which as a substance is good. Evil then is an accident, i.e. a privation of that good, which is called health. So here is a dog with a poorly paw. Uh, when the dog's poorly paw gets better, uh, the poorliness doesn't go onto something else. And Augustine takes this as an example and to some extent as evidence of a privative view of evil. And we can undoubtedly think of other examples of evil uh, that fit a privative view. So poverty is very clearly the absence of, um, if not wealth, then at least kind of due, bread, food, um, housing, stability, that kind of thing. Uh, material goods that, that are necessary for life. Um, but the privationist's argument is not that some evil is privative, it's that all uh, evil is privative. And not all examples of evil seem to fit the privative view so easily. Um, I think there were two problem cases in particular. Um, and I'm going to focus on one of them, though I think I could have focused on either and um, given the same talk, <laughs> come, come up with the same possible solution here. So the, the example I'm going to look at is the example of pain, uh, bodily, bodily pain, acute bodily pain. And a number of people make this point that the phenomenology of pain uh, is a positive experience in the, in the sense that it seems to be, obviously it's negatively valenced, but in the sense that it does not seem to be um, a pure absence by any means. If we're in agonizing pain, it does not seem to be the absence of something. It seems to be 
the presence of something and something extremely unpleasant. So Crosby says, take the piercing pain of a patient suffering from bone cancer. It is practically impossible to interpret such pain as a mere lack of feeling of wellness that a healthy person should have. The pain is obviously something more than any such lack. It is something in its own right. The pain seems clearly to be the contrary of the feeling of wellness and not just the lack of it. Uh, Todd Calder says, pain is not simply the absence of feeling or best characterized as an absence of health or pleasure. It is a positively bad sensation or feeling. And Stanley Kane says, it is clearly inadequate to describe a limb aching with pain as suffering merely a privation of good health or normal feeling. When pain occurs in the body, there is something new and different in a person's experience, which is not present when the body has simply lost feeling. So I'm going to call this the phenomenological objection from pain. Phenomenological just because it's about the sheer experience of pain. And I think it's the most significant argument against a private view of evil. It's often described as such. It's one that's been discussed as early as Suarez. Um, probably the only other contender for um, a really significant argument against the private view of evil um, is um, moral evil, such as, say, uh, sadisticness or something like that. And again, there's a sense that, well, this doesn't seem like the absence of something. This seems like um, a, a demonic force. This seems like a, a, the presence of something that wasn't there previously, not just the absence of kindness or, or something like that. Um, so the subjective experience of pain is a, um, is a positive experience. It's not simply the absence of something. Um, but we usually regard the subjective experience of pain as an evil. Therefore, there seems to be an inconsistency between a theory about evil and about its reality. Now, most responses to this problem are multi-pronged. Um, they're disjunctive, there seem to be, often people would choose a collection of different responses uh, to kind of bolster each other up. Um, I'm only going to look at one response uh, today. And one of the things I'm interested in is whether it's sufficient on its own or whether it needs bolstering up, as well as kind of this question of whether it works at all, whether it's, whether it's persuasive at all. Um, if it does work, I think it works for this problem relating to moral evil, uh, sadisticness, for example, as well as the problem relating to the experience of pain. And it's uh, a McCaveyan argument about a washing machine. McCabe says, now notice that whenever we say something is bad, we are saying that it doesn't come up to expectations. We are saying, in fact, something negative about it. A bad washing machine is one that won't wash the clothes properly. If someone says his washing machine is a bad one, you don't yet know whether it tears the clothes into strips or soaks them in oily water or just doesn't move at all when you switch it, switch it on or electrocutes the children when they want to go near it. It can be bad for an indefinite number of reasons so long as the one negative thing is true. 
but it doesn't come up to expectations for a washing machine. So again, we've got this strongly teleological thing. Friedswide was supposed to have a squeaker and stuffing in her. It's a privation because she doesn't, but that's a lack. On the other hand, um, McCabe is saying, badness is a negative thing. This washing machine doesn't come up to expectations. But he says, please notice carefully that this does not mean that a bad washing machine always has to have a part missing. It is not negative in that sense. A washing machine may be bad, not only because it has too little, as when there is no driving belt on the spin dryer, but also because it has too much, as when someone has filled the interior with glue. Um, yes. Well, let's just leave that there. Um, how might this help? How on earth might this glue-filled washing machine help here? Well, um, I think one way is it's drawing attention to the fact that a privative account of evil is teleological. So it's not um, an absence. It's an absence of a due good, an absence of an appropriate good. And the idea that there is an appropriate good in the first place is strongly linked to the idea that uh, created beings, whether manufactured or natural, um, have some kind of purpose, have some kind of teleology, are created to be a certain kind of thing. Um, so it's teleological. It's also, and I struggle to find the right word for this because holistic used to be kind of slightly overused and um, wasn't always great, but the best I could come up with was something like contextual or holistic. So it's not a small picture. It's not an atomized view. It's always a big picture. It's always taking the overall situation into account. So something might have some evil associated with it, such as being filled with glue or having acute pain. Um, but that is part of an overall picture and we need to take into account whether that overall picture is a good or bad picture. So, oh, I think I might just have covered all of that without that slide. Um, yes, well, So I, I think what I'm trying to get at here is the badness of the glue in the washing machine is bad because of the overall badness of the situation. The washing machine then electrocutes the children. That's a great bad. Otherwise, we might think a glue in a washing machine is, is not that terrible. The bad of cancer patients' pain is bad because of the overall badness of their ill health. So the experience of pain need not always be bad, right? Sometimes. Um, it's quite helpful to experience pain um, because we realise that we've got a slight injury and need to, we've been running and we've got a slight injury, sprained ankle, we need to rest our foot. Um, unless we have pain, uh, that injury is going to get worse. Uh, sometimes we realise that we need to draw our hand away from a hot flame uh, in order to avoid burning ourselves and, and we're kind of pleased that we've had that initial experience of pain. So the experience of pain need not always be bad. Sometimes it can help avoid injury or death. Um, so it seems that objectors are looking 
at the situation quite atomistically. Um, they're not looking at the bigger picture of whether the overall um, situation of the person in pain uh, is, uh, whether the pain is a good or a bad in that situation. Now, how are anti-privationists going to respond here? Um, well, I think they might well say that this response, this washing machine, glue in the washing machine response, misses the mark by locating evil in some generic big picture. And as a result, it deflects attention away from the evil of pain as such. So like Donald Trump going, look here, and you're not looking at what you're supposed to be looking at, you're looking at some other thing. Uh, Stanley Kane says, at least in part, and certainly a major part, the reason for considering pain evil, as opposed to the conditions in the body or elsewhere that produce pain, is precisely that it is painful. So he's saying, stop looking away from the pain itself, look back at the pain itself. Now that is where in the evil lies, and if a private of you can't account for the pain of that evil, uh, even if it's in this bigger context, then it fails. For example, you might think, when you think about the case of the bone cancer patient, our focus shifts from seeing the evil of the feelings of pain they experience to a more general overview of their condition. And then we go, okay, well, this person, uh, there's a privation of health with this person and that's where in the evil lies. Uh, or maybe in the case of something like um, uh, childbirth, we might think, well, the overall, the overall context is a good one. And, and the, the pain is, is just uh, one aspect of that overall picture. And, and the anti-privationist is saying, no, look here, look at this, precisely this pain in and of itself, that's where the evil is. And I think there's a significant ethical concern here. Um, that the view shifts from a first-person perspective to a third-person perspective. It, um, it doesn't take the sufferer's own experience of pain as primary, the sort of significant, the ow of the person in pain, and it ought to do that. And there are ethical concerns with um, not taking that as primary. Hmm, so how might a privationist respond? Because that's pretty, uh, pretty convincing in some ways. Um, I think one thing that the privationist might do is to point out that in our ordinary language use, in our ordinary ways of making sense of things and of reasoning, um, we already evaluate pain in a kind of contextual uh, or holistic way. So there seems to be some good evidence to suggest that our pain is more likely to involve more in the way of suffering. By this I mean we're not only likely to feel ow, but we're likely to mind the feeling of ow if we understand the pain to be symptomatic of a terminal illness rather than if we understand it to be temporary or even therapeutic. So um, pain and suffering can come apart uh, and we're more likely to experience more suffering um, if we evaluate the overall situation 
in which our pain takes place as bad. And that's true from, from first person accounts. That's true if we under, understand our own pain to be permanent, we're more, it's more likely to be accompanied with more suffering. An example I think McCabe would um, approve of is that we are less likely to mind a hangover if we evaluate the previous night as worth it. Uh, if it was a bit of a rubbish evening, <laughs> then, then we might think, why did I just keep on drinking and now my Saturday has been written off as well and I can't do all of the things that I wanted to do today. But at least, at least sometimes, um, and uh, I, I stayed with old friends last night, so I, I think this uh, is relevant to the situation today. At least sometimes we think, ah, oh, but that, that was worth it. That was, that was good, drinking that much wine and catching up. Uh, and you mind the hangover less. So there's less suffering, uh, even if the pain is the same. Again, some literature is suggesting that childbirth pain is thought to involve less suffering if the mother uh, wants to have a child. Uh, and so those are all kind of contextual things. But there's also a teleological dimension to the way we evaluate and make sense of things. Um, so, for example, my, my hangover today, uh, which occurred in the context of the previous evening having been worth it, uh, also kind of, it also feels better because uh, I regard socialising with friends as part of a well-lived life. If I'd maybe been brought up in a more puritanical tradition and I kind of thought, um, drinking is always sinful and, and um, I should feel guilty about it, uh, then perhaps I wouldn't feel that. So perhaps I would suffer more as a result. A mother might um, want the child or she might not want the child, but if she believes at some level in the intrinsic value of life, the niceness of babies or something like that, then that's more likely, that's a kind of teleological aspect uh, that will make a difference to her evaluation of her pain. And I think what I'm getting at here um, is that we don't really need to depart from our everyday way of evaluating things just because we're doing metaphysics. So there can be a tendency of analytic philosophers in particular, perhaps, of, of which I'm one, to become very atomistic and to drill down to the, the smallest bit. Um, and what I'm saying here is, well, that's not how we tend to evaluate things in everyday life. So this kind of holistic and teleological way of evaluating uh, pain, of evaluating evils, uh, might in fact be the most natural way of doing so. So my conclusion is, I think that a compelling case can be made for evil like being like a hole in the sock, that is, for a privative view of evil. And I just want to thank Fides Wide Fox and Lola the dog for disemboweling her. Thank you very much.